0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hans Conrad Schumann. His name doesn't probably ring much of a bell, but his photo might.
0: Paid for by the American Petroleum
1: Institute. It's midnight August 13th, 1961, when East Germany seals its borders in West Berlin. It's a divided city. It had been open. You could go from West Germany to East Germany, though the borders between the countries, East Germany and West Germany, had already been sealed. Berlin was a bit of an exception, dating to the end of World War II. Germany's former capital, was completely encircled by the zone that the Soviet Union was to cover. This was Germany was essentially split up by the Allied powers after World War II and a very large zone considering the sacrifice of the Soviet Union and where the Soviet Union is geographically located so that any threat in the future from Germany could be mitigated. They took the suction in the east Berlin's in that section, and since Berlin is such an important city, the Allied powers agreed to have zones within the city. And in 1949, two things happen: The Allies decide between the UK, France, and America to form a country ostensibly called the Federal Republic of Germany, but known on maps as West Germany. And a few months later, the Soviet Union does the same thing, granting East Germany or the German Democratic Republic, though it's not by any means a democracy. It's a Soviet-controlled, very strict police state. That forms in October 1949. So now you have two countries, but in the middle of this country, East Germany, is a little city and the Autobahn that connects, a couple corridors connecting the city to West Germany. East Germans didn't want to be there. They fled the regime in droves. 2,000 escaping almost every day by the time you're getting to August 1961. There are many Germans who are on the east side who have gone with their families or some of their families, this is key, to the west side. To stem the bleeding of economic power and educated professionals, East Germany gets... Khrushchev's permission to seal off the city and initially there's no wall or fence or anything there so they have to do this with people, with armored cars um, start putting up posts they put up barbed wire because we're just talking about a city along city streets in fact there's certain houses that are separated and there's going to be people that jump out of the window of their house into freedom But there's only a few people who can do that. And very quickly, those apartments that are on the border are vacated and people are pushed deeper into East Germany. Yeah, it's a country where just leaving is a crime. So this barbed wire is put up. It's not high. It's maybe two feet of barbed wire. People in West Berlin have heard talk. There's going to be a wall put up. But there's no immediate evidence of that. On the West German side, the U.S. military is looking at this. Western journalists are looking at this. They think something's going on here. They actually see troops massing. Like, is there going to be some kind of an attack here? There are aerial observatories. They don't see anything in particular, uh, but they do see buildup and the barbed wire. Journalists are waiting for something to happen, and they think it's possibly a confrontation that's going to happen. But journalists do go to this border. And one photographer watching the situation, which he doesn't think is going to be pouring concrete, but possibly tanks rolling over that barbed wire and into the West German side, is Peter leaving, And he sees an East German soldier at one point. And he has this kind of journalist intuition. And he gets his camera ready. The East German police and the soldiers know what's going to happen. Maybe not everything, but they know that there's going to be a ceiling. And in particular, that their job would be to restrain East Berliners fleeing West. And that means they would have to shoot their own country citizens. One of them was 18-year-old Hans-Conrad Schumann, who was assigned to guard a section to streets. He's not pleased with the assignment, to say the least. An officer ordered him to take control and protect the border against the enemies of socialism. We stood around looking pretty stupid at first. Nobody had told us how that's done Taking control of a border He's nervous Smoking cigarettes He goes over to the barbed wire And he pushes down on a a bit with his boot And that's when Peter Liebing Watches him "Hmm, It's a little weird I could just be checking it You know to understand Again this barbed wire is just like two feet So when 19 year old Peter Liebing sees him You know it's not immediate And he's watching him for an hour. The soldier is so nervous. He's pacing. And Schumann notices that the other guards around him are distracted. Because a crowd has appeared on the West German side. People on the West Berlin side are telling the soldiers, come over here. Then there's a crowd on the East German side. Or a group of people that occupies some of the soldiers around Schumann. And it's 4 p.m. Schumann swaps out a loaded submachine gun, which would have been too heavy for an unloaded one. He flicks away his cigarette and just takes a running start and in seconds, deftly leapt over the barrier, his gun clattering to the ground, he's whisked into a waiting West German police car. It was all over in three or four seconds. My nerves were at a breaking point, Schumann says. I took off, I jumped, and into the car in three, four seconds. It was all over. Except it isn't. Because Peter leaving, the journalist was ready, and he snaps a photo at the same time. Schumann leaps, getting a single frame of Schumann flying over the barbed wire, his legs outstretched, and very serious and intent about his desire. Representatives of the Ministry for State Security and East German Police first agreed to portray his escape as a kidnapping. But there's so much press coverage in the West... It was hard to maintain this depiction. There would be over a hundred soldiers that year and thousands in the history of East Berlin that would escape. But he was the first, and the photo made him a symbol. The trouble for him is that this photo makes him famous in the Western world, but his family's all in the East, including his parents. He hasn't had much experience. He's five when World War II ends. He hasn't experienced anything in a free capitalist country. And he leaves Berlin. He settles in Bavaria, starts a family, works in an Audi assembly plant for a couple couple decades, but it's lonely. He gets letters from his parents, but only later would he realize these letters weren't really coming from his parents. They were written by the Stasi, the East German secret police. He doesn't know about letters he gets from the other relatives. He thinks some of them are legit, but some of these letters say, you can come over here, you're not going to be punished, just come back. We want to see you. West German police officer tells Schumann, you do not want to do that. Don't be foolish. Other returned defectors have been immediately shot. Still, Schumann became lonely and isolated, only able to communicate through these letters, which at least are monitored and sometimes dictated. So he's just talking to secret police. When the Berlin Wall falls in 1989, he says, only now have I felt truly free. But he really wasn't. And this is the sad part. Schumann, for all of his heroic escape to the West, never quite settled well because he was like kind of famous in the West, infamous in the East. When Saxony and East Germany, his old town opens up, some of the villagers there, some of his relatives, don't want to talk to him at all. They consider him to be a traitor. He continues to sign. Picture. That's the, the other thing is he can't make any money from this photo because it's considered a historic photo. So all he can do is appear at the museum near the Berlin Wall, sign photos, talk to people. And in 1998, suffering from depression, he commits suicide, hanging himself in his orchard in Bavaria. It's from an article. The history man left no farewell letter behind. Neighbors in the village describe him as a quiet, retiring man. All he had to show for his ephemeral fame was that picture on the living room wall alongside a floral tapestry and a photograph of him with Ronald Reagan. The family were reasonably prosperous. They'd inherited a house from the in-laws. The wall was built in 1962, and there's no time during its history as a wall where people weren't attempting to get over. The East Germans, and by extension the Soviets, had built their own propaganda disaster, because it was a constant symbol of people trying to leave. There's also a take that John F. Kennedy has as president. Well, not liking the wall. You know, they do their surveillance afterwards. They send cars into West Germany because they want to make sure, do we still have the right to go into East Germany? Because maybe the ambassador, you know, they they send some of the American delegation in to go to the theater in East Germany. Yeah, they let them in through the checkpoint. They don't let many East Germans over to the West. They don't let many of the West over to the East, without rigorous controls, but they do some. They built the wall a bit into the East territory so that there would be no provocation during the building phase. And Kennedy eventually says, well, better a wall than a war. It kind of stabilizes the situation. And it's of tremendous propaganda value for the West. Here you had to build a wall to keep your people in. And presidents from Kennedy to Reagan are going to keep bringing this up. The day after it's built, there are people leaving, sneak out, a woman sneaks out of a window and fortunately dies, dropping below. Um, it's varies how many, but at least a hundred, possibly two hundred people died over the course of the Berlin Wall trying to escape. The last person Chris geffrey in February 1989 just months before the wall was brought down thinking that he heard that it was okay to cross now he is shot by East German guards and he's the last to be shot going over there's also a fellow Winfred Frudenberg who tries an improvised balloon aircraft people tried all of these gliders and everything to get over that wall and get to the east side he died when it crashed Thousands of people escape over the time that the, the wall exists. But the symbol will always be Hans Conrad Schumann because of that iconic photo. You know, I think it's it's good sometimes. And you got to remember, I'm coming out of I'm still doing the research. I promise to get it out as soon as I can, early 2023 on the fall of the Soviet Union, five episodes. But I mean, one thing that just strikes me right off the bat is it's the thing that we take for granted in a free country. It's just freedom of movement. And the ability to, if you want to, leave and even go somewhere else in the world, which these people didn't have. This is like a hot hot podcast of a bunch of different things. In a cast in 2013, I told the story of a little bit more of the story of Grover Cleveland. If you remember, in the 1884 election, Cleveland is tarred with a story about having a baby out of wedlock. Ma, ma, where's my pa? His opponents throw that line at him. And so it's a good valid question. Well, what happened after that? And was this story even real? And the story in a sense is real, but some of the details are debatable. But certainly in a modern context, particularly when you think about things like Me Too or feminism, women's rights, um, women having the right to vote now, the story of Cleveland and Maria Halpin really doesn't look, if it ever looked good, It really doesn't look good in a modern context and has to be a blemish um, against Cleveland, who so often in other respects is saluted for his character. But here it goes from a cast that uh, I had in 2013. Tristan Johnson writes me, I invite you to check out my series Then and Now on YouTube. Was the Grover-Cleveland scandal confirmed ever? The Grover Cleveland scandal involved allegations that he had had a child with Maria Halpin. Maria Halpin was a store clerk in Buffalo. Grover Cleveland was a lawyer in Buffalo. He was a bachelor. His law partner and a few other friends were known to go to bars, and they had dealings with local women. Maria Halpin was one of them. Maria Halpin had a child. The father of the child was never confirmed. It's likely that it was one of two people. It was either Oscar Folsom, who was Grover Cleveland's law partner, or it was Grover Cleveland himself. The child that Maria Halpin had was named Oscar Folsom Cleveland. Kind of tells you what she was thinking about it. Some of her own friends had said at the time that she wasn't even sure who the father was. She was paid money to be quiet. She was paid money to give up the child eventually. Regular child support payments were made. Eventually, the mother was committed for a short time, and during that period, the child was placed in an orphanage. Later, the child was placed with a prominent family in Buffalo. Was it ever confirmed? Well, the fact was that Grover Cleveland had been paying for child support. So it's one of two things. It's either Grover's kid, or he was covering up for Oscar Folsom, his law partner, because Oscar Folsom was married. Now, there's a couple interesting things in this story. If, indeed, Oscar Folsom Cleveland turns out to have been Oscar Folsom's son and not Grover Cleveland's, then it would be true that Grover Cleveland ended up marrying Oscar Folsom Cleveland's sister. Cleveland married Oscar Folsom's daughter, Frances Folsom. Married her in the White House. Oscar Folsom Cleveland became the son through adoption of Johnny King, a prominent gynecologist in Buffalo. And then uh, he studied it as well. So Johnny King became uh, developed his own gynecology practice and was successful. We know that. We know that he died in 1947 and that he didn't say anything publicly that was recorded about the scandal whatsoever. Did he talk to friends? Perhaps, but there's no letters. No newspaper accounts, no anything that anyone can seem to track down uh, him talking about the Cleveland scandal. A lot of ash has fallen on this purple land. So wrote the author Eduardo Galliano, someone that I quoted in our recent podcast, Soccer and Repression. He was talking about his home country of Uruguay, adjacent to um, Argentina, in fact, so close that you can take a ferry. A dictatorship there in the 1970s forced him into exile, since he was an author, he wrote books and spoke out. It was no longer a place he could live we've spoken in the past of the chilean dictator pinochet and the argentine junta with the various names there and the dictatorship in brazil the reality is that in latin america in the 1970s you know you're really uh dealing with kind of one large nexus of dictatorship that occurred there and the united states plays a role no doubt through the CIA, not some weird conspiracy theory, a actual documented program, you know, ostensibly to help fight communism and its establishing dictatorships, almost following the similar pattern with little differences. And Uruguay does have some differences we'll talk about. But the reality is all of these are the same because they use the united states and its training and its military security experts and economic health and they use the international monetary fund to establish their governments after they're seizing power as armies you know that script is almost exactly the same so paraguay bolivia get dictators ecuador and peru get presidents or generals who stay in office i don't wouldn't consider peru as repressive as the others but um You know, that's a lot to be more oppressive than the Argentine junta in the late 70s. But when you get people who escape from Argentina and they're in Lima, Peru, the Peruvian authorities and the military help get them out and return them to Argentina. Same thing's going on in Uruguay. Anything that the Argentine junta needs and they don't particularly want to do themselves, they bring to Uruguay. Mothers removed from their children by sending them to Uruguay where they're conveniently shot oh, they resisted arrest or something like that. And, oh, there was a terrible accident uh, on the boat or something. And then the child is with a uh, family of the Uruguayan military. Uruguay is different in some ways, and we didn't discuss it in the last cast, because this nation is pretty small. I mean, Uruguay is a small country, as Latin American goes. Just 2.5 million living there in the 1970s, less than Puerto Rico at that time. And so, in a way... That makes the dictatorship worse. In fact, 20% of the country in this dictatorship, which is going to exist in some form between 1973 and 1986, 20% of the people are incarcerated. Can you believe that? Could you believe living in, in the United States where 20% of the people at one time or another, maybe for short periods, are incarcerated, incarcerated? Yeah. You're doing the math in your head right now, right? You're talking about 60 million people. So that happens in Uruguay. It's a small country. They're able to control. The other thing they do is things like they do a kind of negative option system, unless you get a certificate of what they call democratic faith from the police that shows that you're a positive supporter of the Uruguayan dictatorship. You won't be able to get a job. You're not able to go to school or things like that. Professors are replaced with military people who who have programs instead of curriculum. In the Joint Chiefs of Staff Building of the Armed Forces in Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay, all Uruguayan citizens are entered into a computer in three categories, A, B, or C according to the degree of danger that they present. And with my apologies, I'm not sure which one was the most dangerous, whether the A is or the C is. But with one of those letters, you get a certificate of democratic faith. With the other, you're targeted for being locked up. But everyone suffered. Everyone suffered. It was a reign of the deaf mute that they wished to set up, Eduardo Galliano says. Those who weren't condemned in prison were condemned to isolation and silence. A comment found offensive to the regime would carry three to six years. Just a comment. Statues of Uruguayan colonial heroes, those who asked for more land for peasants, were removed from the main plaza, as they might cause too much trouble and be in some kind of contrast with the government that they had now. You weren't allowed to form groups, You weren't allowed to meet with each other, interact with other people. You had to stay in your own home, kind of like dictatorship-imposed lockdown. Even to have a birthday party, you had to get permission from the police. Now, I know now I just said the word lockdown. I don't want any misconstruing of that. What I mean is, of course, there's no virus we're talking about. This is a dictatorship. It's gradual. In the 1960s, there's already some terror. and This is what you see in most of the countries. You know, you don't really just need to start with the period where hunters or dictators are declared in these countries. They all, in Latin America, have a very precarious democracy, even in the 1960s. In Uruguay's case, activities of the government that are repressive are mostly aimed at the university, at socialists, at communists. The president, Jorge Pacheo, is having trouble with rebels called Tupamaros, who are communist fighters and increased military funding. These fighters do kidnap a UK ambassador and they do kill a US security advisor. And that is the cause to increase military funding. And the military keeps hitting up the civilian leadership for more and more influence on their policies and more and more ability to detain citizens. There's an election in 1972 and it's completely split. And they have this proportional representation system of sorts. You have uh, lemas and sub-lemas. So you have parties and parties under the parties. And so there's a lot of different votes going in different places, but people are allied with others. And then once there's a victor, uh, it's not who gets the most votes, it's which groups of the lemas, the top groups, get the most votes among all their subgroups. One candidate gets 40% of the vote, obviously a plurality in the, among, like, the eight candidates running in the election. But the other gets just 18%. But because nationalist parties together get 41, the opposition party gets 40, they technically have more votes. Then you pick the leader among these, like, five candidates that are running on the nationalists, lemma. And the highest one has 18. So it's a person with just 18% of the vote becomes president. And that is Juan Maria Bordaberry. He immediately declares that he's going to fight these communist guerrillas. And he declares a state of internal war in Uruguay, requiring him to have immediate emergency powers. He passes a bill through the assembly that allows political prisoners to be tried by the military. So right there, with that step. You've lost your official rights because a military trial, you do not have the presumed innocent or anything like that. He passes a bill through the assembly that will increase the role of military in the government. They still want more. Torture is rampant. Anyone who knows anything about the guerrillas can be subject to arrest for as long as the military needs. Eduardo Galliano says this creates the deaf mute republic. Nobody wants to talk to anyone. No one wants to talk to their neighbors, even their own family. They just stay shut up inside. The National Assembly seeks to investigate these torture incidents. And the military says, well, we would like to help, but you know we can't, national security. But they insist then that President Bordaberry set up a commission to investigate the National Assembly, to investigate the politicians for all their corruption. And now you have an internal squabble too, because President Bordaberry wants to rein in the military and put in his own defense minister. The army and the navy object, and he can't overcome their objections because the military also goes out to some elements of the public and makes proclamations that the president's not doing a good job, that they might have to take over, and they're going to cure unemployment and rid the country of Uruguay from terrorists. The president's doing nothing. So Botte-Barre is forced to make a deal with the military to give them a seat at the table. Essentially, he does a self-coup. He's there as president, but he allows the military to govern with him through a National Security Council that really has much of the power. In fact, in 1973, the National Assembly is removed, replaced with this Security Council. And then Bordabari himself is overthrown in 1976. No one really cries a tear over that because he started becoming a bit of a dictator himself, so many felt like, well, let's just give it to the military. It only got a nominal democratic election in any case, never even close to a plurality, forget a majority. The military puts in another president, DiMicelli, and he cancels elections, but then he starts to think for himself too much, and he's replaced with President Mendez. Social services are cut, utilities are privatized, unions are crushed, and the country borrows heavily from the United States and the International Monetary Fund. When you get to the late 70s, the military, who and this is a problem that occurs you know, in these countries, although the military has a pretty firm control over opposition, they sort of need, crave, require support from the large swath of people. You know, they know what they've done. They know what their sin is. They know as military people, they've taken over. And so you see in each country, happens in Argentina, takes a long time, uh, never happens really in Chile, that they need to get some kind of endorsement from the people. So they put out a referendum in 1980 and they want a government that will reduce to, the, they'll, they'll have elections, but they will be just two parties. And they happen to be conservative parties, very supportive of the military regime. In 1980, Uruguayan voters reject this, 57%. This is difficult for the military to take even with their power, and it begins the unraveling, lessens the influence. Not to be stopped, the head of the National Security Council, Alvarez, now becomes the president of Uruguay. Since they're unable to put forward an election, he declares that a few more parties will be allowed, but there's still no leftist parties allowed in Uruguay anymore. Only traditional parties, they say. But to some degree, allowing... Political talk, discourse, activity, elections, at all, is opening the genie out of the bottle. Now there can be meetings. You know, things aren't as restrictive. By 1983, you have a political rally, you have a massive strike, you have half a million people on the streets of Montevideo. Now, don't forget the size of the country we're talking about. So it's about one sixth of the population are on the streets of the capital. Even this military rigid government. You know, they try to blame the event as as it's as, as just the communists don't pay any attention to them. They know that they, that they have to give up soon. By 1985, the regime is ending and it insists on a transfer of power. OK, we'll give the power back to democracy, but you have to give us amnesty. And that deal more or less is taken. And by 1986, the dictatorship, in, by all means, is gone. But as Eduardo Galeno says, in Uruguay, you have a particular problem that wasn't as present in the other countries is that they've looted the store, that the dictatorship has made the country so bad 20% unemployment, a horrible economy, the nation in debt, that even those that are exiled that now can safely return, no one's going to shoot them, don't have a job in Uruguay, don't have jobs for their families, don't have... You know, a way to get goods in many many cases, and aren't able to come back immediately. In some ways, Galliano says that's the worst crime that the dictators commit. He also noticed that Uruguay never quite recovers in a way. He finds that people, even after the dictatorship, are more careful about what they say. We seek safety in democracy, he says. But that's not what democracy democracy, and free speech are supposed to be about. Galliano, our land of free men is hurt but alive. The military dictatorship that for 12 years forced it to be shut up, to lie, to distrust, was unable to sour its soul. They weren't able to turn us into them, a friend told me, after years of the terror. And I believe it. But fear survives as disguised prudence. Be careful, be careful. The fragile democracy will break if you jostle it. From the viewpoint of the owners of an unjust system, one that frightens in order to perpetuate itself, all creative audacity is thought to be a terrorist provocation. A responsible government is an immobilized government. Its duty is to keep the latifundios, and the repressive machinery intact. The officers left the country in ruins, and in ruins it remains. In the village, the old people water flowers among the tombs. talked about the world cup in 1978 in that previous cast and uh the final game of the world cup was between argentina again ruled by a dictatorship junta what about the team that they played the netherlands well there isn't too much to say the netherlands played argentina very good team um did not win that game the Netherlands, there was a little bit of debate, but not much about whether they should participate in the World Cup. One Dutch player, Oki Hokema, refused to play them in the World Cup. He also starts a petition and sets out to get other football players against the Dutch team. Later, he demanded that his club, FC Den Haag, exempt him from playing in any countries where there is, is an authoritarian government. Now his club pushes back. Ah, you talk too much. I will say what I have to say, Hokuma says. I don't speak with flour in my mouth. If someone asks me a question, I will answer it. But outside of Hokuma, no one else joins in this rebellion. All the other players play. People are delighted. They know the Dutch team is good, and they have a chance to win this. They nearly do win this World Cup. They get all the way to the championship game. You know, in any country, I mean, it's hard to give that up. The World Cup is the most important thing in a lot of countries. It's starting to be in the United States as well. And it's, you know, you're going to give up your chance to be the World Cup champion for a political issue. How was pretty much alone? In fact, he was banned from talking to journalists by his own club. He thinks it's crazy. He goes, look, I understand. There's something wrong with every country. There's something in every country. But this was a Hitler regime and everybody knew it. He never seriously played for the Dutch national team again. And now, even as a 72-year-old, he didn't want the Dutch team to go to Qatar. And once it did go, he wanted a more serious discussion about that country and its practices.
0: Our future is closer than we think. Our needs are growing, and so is the demand for energy, including more U.S. oil and natural gas. Our economy, our security, our nation all run on energy. Oil and natural gas make up more than 70 percent of the energy we use every day. And American energy is produced to among the highest environmental standards in the world. It's time to shine a light on the policies that threaten a reliable energy future. Policies like restricting access to U.S. oil and gas leases, limiting U.S. liquefied natural gas, and canceling pipeline projects. The realities we face are clear. American energy is America's advantage. Tell Washington we need smart policies today to ensure a brighter tomorrow. Visit LightsonEnergy.com. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: There's also a rock band who has a song in 1978 that they released called Blood on the Goalposts. We're going to Argentina, where there's killings every day, but there's no time to think about that. Rep just scored. Their song, which becomes popular in 1978, highlights the contrast between sports and the humanitarian abuse that was going on. So there's a discussion in Holland about all this, but it's on the fringes, definitely. In fact, the prime minister makes fun of some of the complaints about the Dutch team playing in Argentina. At the championship game, the Dutch team marched along the Argentine team to the tune of a military marching band and some traditional Netherlands folk dancing. Marched around the stadium. I think that's a tough choice. I don't want to belittle the choice. I don't think it's easy. I don't think necessarily people should jump out of a game like that. Uh, if they knew everything going on. If the whole world knew everything that was going on and how close it was to the stadium and all of that, I think that might be a little different. But uh, I don't want to begrudge anybody for playing in the sport they've played with in all their life. I think they feel the same thing about Qatar. But obviously, you see the um, protests and the treatment of LGBTQ, I mean, it's just non-existent in that country. Their understanding of LGBTQ issues and you're not even allowed to have a rainbow flag or something like that's considered politics you know, instead of an integral part of somebody's identity as a human. You know, you do see some protests, you see some players making their statements, you know, the person that rushed onto the, onto the field with a rainbow flag and, and things like that. But they're limited, um, but you still see it live. Sports and politics, because there's so much attention on sports, and everybody says, keep them separate, but that's hard to do when it's an event in the world that all the eyes are on, and there's some huge injustice going on. But anyone who thinks that it's something that only exists in 2022, certainly not. That's 1978, and you have the same player still talking about politics and soccer. So uh, Entitled Cyclist on Twitter wrote to me, and this was something I wasn't aware of that I find fascinating um, in regards to the soccer and repression cast about the 1978 World Cup, the Argentine Junta. Bruce, maybe you may already know this, but old Ford Falcons are popular in Buenos Aires. We talked about when the Junta came in, all of a sudden these Ford Falcons would appear and they were associated with the military police, the secret police rounding up people. It's sort of like the Trabant is a sought-after car in East Berlin. Iconic or antique status symbol. Here it is in Reuters Argentine death squad cars. Try for new image. Thirty years ago, the sight of a dark green Ford Falcon driving slowly past was a spine-chilling intimidation that made some Argentines considering going into consider going into exile. Death squads drove Falcons during the 1976-83 to regime, forced people into the cars and hauled them off for questioning or worse, during a dark era, when an estimated 11,000 to 30,000 leftists and bystanders were killed. These days, the Falcon's sinister reputation is being overhauled by fans who see the best-selling car in Argentina's history in a different light, a glorious local tradition. It's not the Falcon's fault, says Alejandro Hernandez, 35-year-old carpenter. The police probably just needed a car that didn't break down. So they got Falcons. Thousands of sturdy Falcons, a roomy four-door sedan sold here from 1962 to 1991, still rumble through the streets of Argentina, where close to half a million were made. Not only the secret police and dictators used the reliable cars, Falcons were popular with taxi drivers. And many Argentines remember their grandfathers or their father's Falcon as the archetypal family car. Okay. You know, we have classics like Tango. Mate, soccer, and the Falcon. It's a national lifestyle, as Argentine is the gaucho. I thought it might be worthwhile to talk about, you know, Charles III. We have a new king of England. And um, that's a big change, obviously. That's a historic Change, I mean, 70 years of having one queen on the throne, many people living their entire lives within Queen Elizabeth's life and Queen Elizabeth's reign, even. And Charles serving as Prince of Wales for the longest period ever. He's now 73 years old. British polls 63% say he will be a good king which is an increase over some polls in the past while he was still a prince. Because, well, Charles has known as spoken out. Now, one thing, you know, he's been very early on things like climate change, on organic food. But some people found he was a little obsessive about it. And they don't want him involved in politics. If he wants to talk, he should run for office. Now that he's king, he can't. You know, the British unspoken constitutional system is that the monarch does not speak out on issues. The monarch speaks through the government. The government's in his name, but he speaks. You know, there's this old movie um, from the 80s, which, you know, could have happened if some of those early 80s labor folks like Michael Foot or so were running, you know, where England becomes communist. Now the movie has England getting pretty close to like a Soviet state. And you see in that, that the Queen's speech is now that I shall have a communist government. That's taken to an extreme because I don't know whether that would activate, you know, a a actual change like that might activate um, some type of royal prerogative that we haven't seen. But generally speaking, the queen just has to, queen's speech and now the king's speech must be what the government wants him to say, wants him to advocate for. He goes where he's told to. So already there was a climate change conference where Richie Sunak went, but King Charles did not um, because previous prime minister Liz Truss had told um, the king not to go. And that's how it works. So you don't say anything. And even he said, um, the idea somehow that I'm going to go on in exactly the same way is complete nonsense. Because the two situations are completely different. Um, So it's just going to be something to examine. And I do want to look from an American viewpoint our system's very different. We're rooted in democracy. Here's, um, see if I get this quote from Tom, Tom Paine. Who's the king of America? I tell you, friend, he reigns above and doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Great Britain. Yet that we may not appear to be defective even in our earthly honors, let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter. Let it be brought forth, placed on the divine law, the word of God. Let a crown be placed therein by which the world may know that so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America the law is king. For as in an absolute government, the king is law, so in free countries the law ought, not, ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. But lest any ill use should afterwards rise, let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and be scattered among the people whose right it is. That's Tom Kane in Common Sense. To be fair, Tom Kaine is attacking George III, a king that many feel, particularly on the American side, was exercising illegal, unconstitutional powers and was persecuting the Americans. Uh, No time for all the details on that debate. What is true is that George III enjoyed a lot more power than anybody in the House of Windsor does, or did. Certainly more power than Queen Elizabeth did, or King Charles III does. So it's very different. He's attacking the royal brute. I mean, there was a person who really wanted to prosecute a war in America, to have it come to blows. He was the first to want to fight. And he had a lot of control over Lord North, his prime minister. It wasn't a prime minister telling the king what to do. It was the other way around in 1776. But it's not just the king in office that um, that Tom Paine was concerned about. It's the succession, like we've just witnessed in Britain now. Again, a very different situation than Tom Stug- Tom Paine is talking about, but he writes England since the conquest hath known some good had known some good monarchs, but groaned beneath a much larger number of bad ones. Yet no man in a census. his senses his senses can say that their claim under William the Conqueror is a very honourable one, a French bastard landing with an armed banditti and establishing himself king of England against the consent of the natives is in plain terms a very paltry, rascally original. Now, Tom Paine is an Englishman who came to America. But common sense, you in my opinion, you have to look at it as one of the founding documents. I will always say that because it was the document that riled up American opinion more than anything else. Preceded the declaration. Um, so when you look at its contents, you get a sense for the American mind at the time. You know, um, and the people who were fighting in the war for American independence. But again, what he's really concerned about is the passage of kings. Like, you might get a good king. Uh, well, he's concerned about where the throne of England comes from originally, which it goes all the way to a guy that invaded the island. That's what you want, he says. Then he says, "Look." No man at first could possess any other public honors than were bestowed upon him, so the givers of those honors could have no power to give away the right of posterity, and though they might say, we choose you for our head. They could not, without manifest injustice to their children, say, that your children and your children's children shall reign over ours forever, because such an unwise, unjust, unnatural compact might, in the next succession Put them under the government of a rogue or fool. He goes on. He goes on talking about, like, you know, various animals and comparing some past kings to that. So, succession was exactly what Paine was really concerned about with the royal system. He said, yeah, maybe there could be a system where we could set up a king if everybody agreed and the king could lead and do a good job. But what about when they have to pass it to their children now we're in trouble okay now i just went into that to give you kind of the american at least the 1776 american uh sentiment about the royal family but i also have to admit that things have changed greatly that really uh in the 19th century england got a lot more democratic particularly during the Disraeli and Gladstone prime ministerships when the right to vote was expanded, when the membership of parliament and the representation in parliament was greatly expanded. And with Queen Victoria, for all her long reign and splendor, began to lose some of the royal power in favor of parliament, which really is supreme and sovereign in the English system. So, in some ways the the system in the United Kingdom is a separate head of state and a separate prime minister, a separate um person running the government and I don't want to discount that entirely as a system because you know the President of the United States is very weighed down by all of the ceremonial responsibilities and things like that that they that they're forced to do uh and um you also have kind of one less person to send. I mean, if there's a major event, or something, you can send the vice president. And vice president's prestige has risen over time, but it's still the vice president. You don't have that kind of like ace in the hole to send to a great foreign policy moment or to have receive a foreign official and be greatly impressed. So, you know, there is a debate going on. There's certainly... Um, now that there's been a succession, there's a debate not only in the United Kingdom, much smaller there. I don't think they're getting rid of their system anytime soon. But certainly in the Commonwealth, Australia, various Caribbean islands, you know, possibly Canada. About being Republican, small arm Republican. It maybe turn the United Kingdom into the from the UK to the U.R. or something like that. Um, but I think that they've done some things it's worthy of discussing to negate that where... These monarchs really don't have power. They're just heads of ceremonial state. Uh, I mentioned one situation where it's of advantage. It's bone for tourism, obviously. I mean, Americans don't like a king. We don't like a king ruling us. But there's an awful lot of Americans that are interested in the royal family and the royal weddings and the pageantry and things like that. And, you know, I mean, what would happen if the United Kingdom were to give up? You know, what kind of, what part of its identity does it lose if it gives up? These are questions that are being debated. I don't think they're, I don't think it's useful to belittle that side of the argument and just say, well, in 2022, we can't have kings anymore. You know, uh, well, they've, they've found a way to do it over the swath of British history, which has changed what it is. And, um, you know, and, and, um, they have democracy within a kingdom. Simply said. Do you get rid of the trappings? Maybe. Uh, You could have it in a system like Denmark where there's a monarch, but it's very, very limited. Uh, And you could could do things like that. Um, You know, it was discovered recently that Prince Charles, as Prince of Wales, was writing what they called the Black Spider Memos to Tony Blair, to various ministers and other people. It was called the black spider minnows because his handwriting is something like a, looks like a black spider <laughs> His handwriting. Um, and, uh, you know, they were examined and I think the, the Guardian came to a good conclusion like, you know, there's so much influence on our government. People who pay money um, to talk to people, um, people who are lobbyists, who threaten politicians with mobilizing votes against them to get an audience or to get influence. Because You know, in comparison to that, these Black Spider memos or Prince maybe talking to Tony Blair like this might be a good idea. Is it really such a bad thing? It's kind of like an extra. There's two sides to that where it's kind of like an extra influence on the government, which might lead to a discovery of some problem that's occurring. That the democracy, which tends to stampede at times towards a policy, is unable to. The other thing we talked about in the Westminster cast is that the British system has a House of Lords as well, which is can't really. Um, stop legislation or originate legislation but can consider and ask questions and has been successful in changing various laws so it's um, there's more ways than one to structure a democratic system and I think these are all important things to consider but certainly you know in America we decided long ago that this system of having a monarch is not one that's interesting to us and the reason could be that so many of our ancestors perhaps had escaped from this very system in Great Britain in one way or another. I want to thank you for listening. And if you can review the program and one of the services, that's great. Podcast Addict, Overcast, All Good, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, All Good. If you like the program, please tell someone about it in some way that you can. That's the greatest thing you can do to help me. And I want to thank you for listening.